Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. since we last talked. How have you been? I've missed our chats. I hear you've been getting really involved with church. Helping out whenever you can. That's great. By the way, are you still in that small group with Cheryl and Dave? How's that going? You're frustrated. Oh, I get it. It can be hard when you're the only one who's really committed. Maybe it's time to move on. Get out of this rut. You don't want to burn out, do you? Always doing things for other people and never taking time for the person in the mirror? Doesn't feel right, does it? Escape this. Go on one of those all-inclusives. Mm -hmm. Can't afford it. Yeah, I get that. You know, that's, uh, that 10% of your salary, I would cover it. Nobody's saying don't give. Just have some fun before you do. You gotta try something out before you can say it's wrong. You got some time to kill? I got an idea. You'll enjoy it, I swear. Come on. You can say I made you do it. Well, we welcome you here at Central Campus, also those of you who are joining us online and those of you who are meeting together at one of our regional campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and in Crowfoot, in Northwest Calgary. We're in a series in which we're exploring what it is that Christians believe. And so far in this series, we've examined what the Bible teaches about who God is, who Jesus is, and who the Holy Spirit is. We come now to another key personality that you find in the scriptures, and that is Satan. While God has our best interests at heart in all things, and communicates his love and his truth and his direction to us through the scriptures and also through his whispers, as we saw in the video just a moment ago, our enemy really seeks to do the opposite. He really seeks to deceive us through his temptations and his whispers. He really has our destruction in mind. And so we're going to examine who Satan is and how he seeks to deceive us and how we can resist him and live in the victory that is ours through Christ Jesus. But before we get into this passage in the scriptures, would you stand with me as we dedicate this time to the Lord in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we praise you today in knowing that you are so much greater than our enemy, Satan. Lord, there seems to be so much confusion in people's minds about who he is. And so I ask you to help us to understand from your word, not only who he is, but how we can resist him, how we can resist his deception, his accusations, and live in victory. Open our ears to hear your word, Lord. Focus our minds Soften our hearts and give us the courage and the will to abide in you and to resist him who is in the world. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. 
In John 16, verse 33, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And when I think of trouble, I think of the story of little four-year-old Zachary, who came racing out of the bathroom, crying, mommy, mommy, I am so sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it, but I dropped my toothbrush in the toilet. His mother just calmed him down, said, it's okay, Zach, don't worry about it, proceeded to fish out the toothbrush and immediately threw it in the garbage. Upon seeing her do that, little Zach ran off to her bathroom, came back with her toothbrush. He held it up and with just a slight grin said, you know, we better throw this one away too because it fell in the toilet last week. In this world, you will have trouble. And not just a little toothbrush trouble either. You have big trouble at times. Jesus says, expect it. I doubt there's anyone here who needs to be convinced of that. We've all had our share of difficulties, hardships, times of discouragement. The question is, why do we have trouble? Well, one reason we have trouble is sin, which resulted in us living in a broken and a fallen world. Despite God's clear warnings, our first parents, Adam and Eve, decided to go their own way rather than God's way. They sinned, and Romans 3.23 tells us that we've all followed suit. Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. And as a result, evil entered the cosmos, resulting in fractured relationships, hardship, pain, suffering, even natural disasters. This world is not what God intended it to be when he first created it. We now live in a broken world filled with trouble. Another reason that we have trouble is self or because we bring it on ourselves. Many troubles in my life can be traced back to the person who looks at me in the mirror each morning. Now, I'd rather blame God for these troubles. I'd rather blame someone else for them. But the reality is I cause a number of the problems in my life, and so do you in your life. But there is a third reason we have trouble, and that is because of our enemy, Satan. Because Satan is a spirit being and functions predominantly in the unseen dimension, many people tend to be oblivious to him. And yet he is very real, and folks, he is very active. The best example in scripture of Satan's sinister activity is his attack on Job. Satan attacked his possessions, his family, even his health. The Bible's very clear on what Satan's agenda is. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, the thief referring to Satan comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan comes to kill our hope, to steal our joy, and to destroy our lives. This is the devil's agenda. He's very much our enemy. He is real. He's as real as Jesus is. He's as real as me standing here. Now, not everyone believes that, of course. In fact, according to a Harris Research poll that was done in 2013, 60% of adults in the United States believe the devil is real. Now, that was a shocking statistic for me because I thought it would be much lower. What was shocking for me was the results of a recent Barna, Barna survey, which revealed that of those who identify themselves as Christians, less than 40% believe that Satan is real. If these research results are, to be, are accurate, then there's no reason not to believe they are. Significantly less Christians believe in Satan's reality than does the general population. Now, folks, that is deeply concerning. It causes me to wonder, what is the church teaching around our planet? It serves to remind me of the need to examine what it is we believe, why it is we believe it. When it comes to the devil, I can tell you this. In ministering to people over the years, I've experienced enough of the enemy to convince me that the devil and his demons are not a product of someone's overactive imagination. 
No, they are real. What the Bible says about them is true. And they are up to no good. C.S. Lewis has written this. When it, when it comes to the devil, we make one of two mistakes. Some people give him undue attention, while others ignore his reality altogether. Lewis is right. Unfortunately, both errors that he refers to exist in the church today, and Satan relishes them both. On the one hand, there are those who have an unhealthy and excessive fascination with Satan and his demons. They almost glorify him more than they glorify Jesus Christ. Some people both inside and outside of the church get involved in occultic practices, often ignorant of their potential effect. Practices such as Ouija boards, party seances, levitation, transcendental meditation, tarot cards, horoscopes, astrology, personal power conferences, and all of their derivatives that we see today, channeling and the like. Folks, indulging curiosity about such occultic practices is no different than walking unarmed, unprotected into the enemy's territory. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, the Lord is very direct about not doing this. This is what we read. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Nations at that time, much like nations today without God, get involved in occultic practices. And he says, don't get involved in that stuff. He says, let no one be found among you who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, interprets spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults with the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. You know, over the years, I and a number of our pastoral team and, and other people who are part of our church have met and ministered to individuals who were tormented and deeply troubled by emotional anxiety and fears. That often, not always, but often, could be traced back to a time they began to dabble in occultic practices. And the enemy got a foothold in their life and began to just slowly reel them in. And began to choke life and joy right out of their life. Now while it's important that we're aware of Satan's strategies and are prepared to resist him, we must guard against being preoccupied with Satan and his activities or giving him undue prominence. You know, he loves to get the attention. He loves to dazzle people with power, getting people, including Christ followers, focusing more on him than on Jesus Christ. Folks, when we come together to worship, it is Jesus we exalt, not the enemy. Amen? Now, while some people focus on Satan too much, others live as if Satan didn't exist at all. Some Christians are materialists who fail to understand that there is another dimension, an unseen spiritual world that is every bit as real as the physical material world that we live in. 2 Corinthians 4.18 affirms this reality. It says this, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. This passage reminds us that we live in two realms, the seen earthly realm and the unseen spiritual realm. And both of those realms, from God's perspective, are very real. Calvin Miller says a lot of people are what he calls practical atheists. An atheist will openly say there is no God. He says the practical atheist, on the other hand, may say, I believe in God, but lives as if there is no God. He's totally consumed with the here and now, achieving the good life. And outside of going to church, perhaps, gives little or no thought to God 
the rest of the week. People who live and who think this way tend to be unaware that there is a spiritual battle going on in the cosmos. That there are unseen forces at work around them seeking to deceive and to ultimately defeat and even destroy them. And yet the Bible teaches we need to be aware of Satan's schemes. We must be prepared to resist the enemy by knowing him and his strategies enough to combat him through the full use of the armor of God. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. On guard. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Satan is a reality, folks. He is powerful. He should not be ignored or taken lightly. He's in opposition to everything that God and the church stand for. He desperately wants to convince you that faith in God doesn't work. That Jesus' sacrifice wasn't good enough. Or it doesn't mean anything. That God's promises won't work for you. Or they're no longer relevant. And so in the time remaining, and also in future weeks, I want to examine what the Bible says about how we can live in victory over Satan. We'll look at two of them today. The first key to living in victory over Satan is to know him and his strategy. And 2 Corinthians 2.11 challenges us to not be ignorant of the devil or his schemes. So who is he? Well, the Bible teaches that Satan is an angel, the most powerful angel that God created. In Colossians 1, Paul is giving a description of Jesus Christ. And he writes this, For by him, meaning Jesus Christ, for by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. There's the two realms we talked about. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Now the terms powers, rulers, and authorities are all titles for angels. The angels are very structured, organized, and disciplined, much like a military organization is structured today. The terms thrones, powers, and authorities refer to the hierarchy of angels or their rankings. But my point is all angels were created by God through Christ, and that includes Lucifer. We don't know how many angels were created, but Revelation chapter 5 indicates it is too many to count. In Job 38 verse 7, angels are referred to as stars, which suggests there may be as many angels as there are stars in the universe, hundreds of billions of them. Now the devil was one of those angels although he was a very special angel. You know, some wonder why a good God would create an evil devil. Well, the short answer to that question is, he didn't. He didn't create an evil man or a woman either. He didn't want to have us humans be androids or robots. Neither, apparently, did he want angels to be robots. He gave angels, he gave mankind the freedom to make choices. And therein is where the fall happened. Now, when we think of the devil, we envision horns, we picture him as ugly and frightening to look at. And yet he was the most beautiful and powerful of all angels. Ezekiel 28, we read that Lucifer was the anointed cherub of God, meaning he was exalted above all angels. He had a special spiritual ministry to God. 
In fact, there's indication in the description we find in Ezekiel 28 that he was specifically crafted to worship God musically. For many of us, the name Lucifer is not a pleasant-sounding name. Probably we wouldn't name our children after him. But Lucifer means shining one. It means the supreme one. Isaiah 14 describes Lucifer as the morning star, a very special angel. We're told that Lucifer was the model of perfection. He was blameless, more powerful than the angel Gabriel or Michael. But then something happened to Lucifer. I'd like you to turn your Bibles now to Ezekiel chapter 28. While you're doing that, just want to give you a little background of what we see here. The Old Testament prophecies often have multiple purposes. You'll see in Ezekiel 28, we have recorded a prophecy directed to the king of Tyre. Often a prophecy will reveal something that will take place in that time or at least in that generation, but then will go on to reveal something that will take place generations later. For example, in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, the prophet Nathan communicated God's promise to King David that upon his death, God would raise up one of his sons, referring to Solomon, to build a house for him, referring, of course, to the temple. But then God goes on to say this in verse 14. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. And so even though the first part of this prophecy is referring to Solomon, the prophecy goes on to talk about a future time. Long after Solomon is dead and gone, long after the temple, the physical temple is destroyed, And it goes on to talk about when a descendant of King David and King Solomon, Jesus Christ, comes to establish God's new and eternal kingdom on earth that will last forever. Well, we see the same thing here in Ezekiel 28. The prophet Ezekiel starts by giving a word of prophecy to the king of Tyre. But then you come to verse 11. And it's obvious, if you go on to read that he's now talking about someone else, about something significantly important. And look at verse 12. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Your settings and mountings Mountings were made of gold. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in all of your ways from the day that you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. Now it's obvious this passage isn't referring any longer to the king of Tyre, because not only is a human not a model of perfection, but he wasn't in the Garden of Eden. No, this is referring to Lucifer, and it says that his heart became proud, and even though he was created to worship God and to lead worship of God, he sought to take the place of God. He wanted to receive worship rather than to give it. In his vanity, he said, I will be like God. And it is this which caused him to fall. 
Now, for all of his wisdom, Lucifer failed to realize that a created being is no match for our creator. According to the prophecy here in Ezekiel 28, also in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, God, seeing his pride and his wicked thoughts, expelled Lucifer from his permanent home in heaven, expelled him to the earth, along with those angels who have conspired with him. In Revelation 12, verse 4, it says that the dragon swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Most scholars believe that this is referring to the angels that joined in his rebellion against God, which means a third of all the angels are now fallen angels referred to as demons. A demon is a fallen angel and referred to by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 when he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against human beings, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Notice these fallen angels of, uh, or demons are still highly structured in a hierarchy, the highest of which are rulers. In some of your translations, it says, uses the word principalities or princess, followed by authorities, and then powers, and finally spiritual forces. In other words, the Bible presents Satan as the commander-in-chief of, of his own kingdom, of a highly organized force of fallen angels who are invisible, wicked, and highly organized, committed to no good. Now, even though Satan was cast out of heaven, the scriptures seem to indicate that he, is, he still has access to heaven. And we see this in the book of Job, in chapter 1, verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. In Revelation 12, verse 10, it tells us that Satan accuses those, those of us who are Christ's followers, before God day and night. Which indicates he communicates with God in some form on a regular basis. Now again, make no mistake, while Satan is powerful, he was created by God. And therefore, he is no match for God. You see, our God is everywhere present. Whereas Satan cannot be at two places at the same time. He can move from one place to another very quickly but he is limited to being at one place at a time. However, his kingdom of fallen angels who are under his authority far outnumber us as humans, and so Satan can still accomplish his sinister purposes through them. Our God is not only all everywhere present, but he's also all-knowing, whereas Satan doesn't know everything. I mean, if Satan knew everything, he would have done everything he could to prevent Jesus from going to the cross because he was ultimately defeated by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our God is all-knowing. He is everywhere present, and he is all-powerful. Satan is very powerful but his power is limited by God himself. In Ephesians 1, verse 22, it says that God placed all things under Christ's feet, meaning under Christ's authority. And that includes Lucifer and his kingdom of darkness. God is in control. And there is nothing that Satan can do without God's awareness or God's permission. For example, we see this on two occasions in the book of Job. In Job chapter 1, verse 12, and Job 2, 6. God in his sovereignty gave Satan permission to have his way with Job, but God drew a clear line in the sand, as it were, of what Satan could not do. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, 
Satan has asked, he has asked to sift all of you as wheat. In other words, Satan wanted to test Peter and the disciples' commitment to God as he did Job. And apparently God gave Satan permission to do that. But Jesus goes on to say that he prayed that in the end Simon's faith would not fail. Knowing that Simon would deny him, Jesus prayed that he would get back up. He would continue to follow him and he would strengthen the other disciples. But my point is, even though Satan has great power, his power is limited by God and by God's sovereign purpose, which means we are protected, friends. Nothing comes our way that God isn't aware of or doesn't allow. And know this, when God gives the devil permission, it isn't because he delights in us facing any kinds of hardships. It is because he delights in us growing in our faith and our experience of him. Job grew up, grew in his understanding and his faith in God through his time of testing. You read the book of Job and you get, you get a whole new appreciation of, of the transformation that happened in the life of Job. The same is true of Peter. Peter was a much more fully devoted follower of Jesus after he denied Jesus. Now because of his jealousy and hatred toward God, Satan is on a mission. He's on a mission to deceive humanity to do the same thing that he did. And that is to be the center of our universe. To receive worship, as it were, rather than worshiping the true and the living God. Satan is on a mission, first of all, to keep unbelievers in the dark. 2 Corinthians 4 Verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The God of this age, by the way, is referring to Satan. He has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan works hard to keep people blinded to the truth of Jesus Christ, even those even to be antagonistic toward Christ by seducing them to focus on temporary things rather than the eternal things of God. Furthermore, Satan is also on a mission to render Christians ineffective for Christ. If you are a Christ follower, Satan is passionately committed to removing you from the, the, the field of action by tempting you to live your life independent of God, just essentially what he did, and to live a life of hypocrisy. Because it serves him really well when we as Christians say one thing and live another. Now people wonder how Satan is able to do this. Well, let me ask you, have you ever known a nice, pleasant, and good person who began to hang around some people of questionable character. And slowly over time, they began to reflect the character and the lifestyle of those particular people. It happens all the time. People often assimilate, take on the attitudes, the actions of those around them. Well, the same thing happens in the spirit world. Take temptation, for example. One of the ways that Satan tries to take us out of the action is just through subtle temptation. Satan knows how to push your buttons to tempt you in the area of your greatest perceived need or struggle, whatever that might be. If your greatest struggle, for example, is to be in a relationship, if that's something that just consumes your thought, it's become like a, an idol in your life, or if, if, if your greatest perceived need is, is to achieve something great or to have more things, he will do all that he can to get you to fall in that particular area, the area of your greatest desire. Satan will rarely show his true colors, that he's your arch enemy set on ruining your life. 
No, often he will present himself like a good and trusted friend who with a smile suggests it's okay to compromise your convictions, to deviate from God's call on your life. This is essentially how Satan tried to dissuade Jesus from following through on his father's mission in Matthew 16. Remember the time when, when Jesus began to talk to his disciples about his coming arrest, the suffering that he would go through, and also his ultimate death? And Peter took him aside, and the scripture says that Peter rebuked Jesus and said, Never, Lord, this will never happen to you. And in that moment, Jesus recognized that Peter was a messenger from Satan. He was trying to get Jesus to focus on the temporary earthly things. To get Jesus to take his eyes off the mission that the Father had given to him. And to be concerned about earthly things rather than the eternal things that God had called him to. And he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Sometimes Satan uses people in our lives to tempt us to walk away from his calling in our lives or to compromise our convictions. Or consider this. Have you ever been in a situation where someone hurt you and you contemplated forgiving them, but you sat down with a family member or maybe you sat down with a close friend and in that conversation, your friend or family member said, you know, I, I wouldn't take that. There's no way. I'd make her pay for what she did. And a tender heart that you had at one moment suddenly began to harden. And you decided not to forgive, but to nurse the grudge. Well, you see, demons can play a similar role in our lives. Where they whisper in our ear, as it were. Or at times even shout at us. To get even, to, to get our pound of flesh. Why do you think sometimes anger goes to rage? Because the spirit world, the demonic world is going... Go for it! Go for it! And instead of forgiving, we get enraged. And Satan loves it because it's all an attempt to harden our heart and to make us ineffective and powerless in our Christian life. He can do that with fear. He can cause us to get so overwhelmed with fear that we're almost incapacitated. In short, in the same way that other people can serve to influence us, either in a positive or in a negative way, there are spiritual beings who are seeking to do the same thing in our lives. Satan will tempt you to question God's word. In the same way he tempted Eve and Adam. Did, did, did God really say that? I mean, have you checked the scriptures? I mean, is, is that really what that passage of scripture is saying? I don't think so. I just think you're interpreting that wrong. Satan will tempt you to trust more in your own resources rather than living in humble dependence upon Jesus and praying that Jesus would do what you can't do. He'll tempt you to stop short of fully obeying God. The way that he managed to convince King Saul to only partially complete the assignment that God gave him. He will tempt you to justify your sins. Ah, oh, you know, your sin wasn't that bad. After all, you're not perfect. Your circumstances are unique. He will tempt you to justify casting another person in a bad light. He will tempt you to quit doing what God's called you to do. With all kinds of obstacles, with all kinds of frustrations, all kinds of difficult people who will come into your life as you're trying to minister, all kinds of disappointments and failures, 
everything intended to get you to quit. In the same way that we read in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, a messenger of Satan came and tormented Paul to discourage him, to get him to pack it in. So yes, Satan is on a mission to take you out of the action through temptation. But I want to remind you that being tempted is not a sin. I mean, after all, Jesus was tempted. And yet he was without sin. Martin Luther says, said, you can't stop birds from flying around your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. Good point, Martin. In other words, it's how we respond to temptation that determines whether we're, we sin or not. Furthermore, I also want to remind you that even though Satan and his demons seek to lead us astray, if we give in to temptation, we can't blame Satan for it. Some of you will remember <clears throat> the comedian Flip Wilson. This goes back about 30 years, so some of you won't. But anyways, you know, Flip Wilson was a guy some 30 years ago whose favorite line was, the devil made me do it. He'd say that and it was funny at the time. Folks, the devil will not make you do anything. In the same way that some people may influence you to do wrong, Satan will tempt you to disobey God, to, he'll lie to you, he will try to deceive you, but at the end of the day, we make our own decisions. For God has given us the capacity, the authority, and the freedom to do so. James 1.14 says, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. In other words, when Satan tempts you, there's kind of a bell, an internal bell that goes off. There's something in us that gets stimulated. There's something in us that harmonizes with what Satan's suggesting. And sometimes it's the world that harmonizes with something inside of us. And the Bible calls that something inside of us the flesh. And when we sin, we give in to our own desires. The world and all of its lure can, can, can tempt us. Satan can tempt us. But at the end of the day, we give in to our own desires. Now make no mistake, the more we give in to sin, the more authority, the more ground we give Satan in our lives, the greater his hold becomes on us. In fact, Matthew 12 verse 43 teaches that Satan can possess human beings when given permission to do so through dabbling in the occult or opening our lives to him. However, he cannot possess true Christians. 1 John 4 verse 4 says, The one who is in you, referring to Jesus Christ, is greater than the one who is in the world, referring to Satan. If you have genuinely repented from sin and embraced Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are God's possession. You are His. And Satan can never have ownership or authority over you. However, let's not forget that all through Scripture, we read that righteous people were afflicted by Satan. They're still the target of Satan, including Jesus. As we've already seen, because we are in Christ, because we are one with Jesus, Satan does not have access to our spirit because he doesn't want to mess with Jesus. But he does have access to our body to our mind and to our emotions. And the more we give in to him by sinning, the more powerful his influence in our lives becomes. If you continually give in to anger, for example, you will find your ability to resist not losing your temper increasingly difficult because you are repeatedly giving powers of darkness ground or a foothold to develop a stronghold in your life in that particular area of your life. All that to say, Satan and his cohorts, they love to create dissension 
and disunity in our homes and in our churches by tempting us to grow cold to, toward God or the things of God, to stir up pride, envy, to stir up resentment, unforgiveness, to get us focused on the minor things rather than the main things that God has called us to. Anything he can do to create conflict in our relationships, slander and gossip. That's the first key to victory over Satan. Knowing the enemy and his strategy. In the few minutes we have left, the second key to victory over Satan is to claim your position and authority in Jesus Christ. You know, Satan is such a deceiver. He will do backflips in order to seduce us to sin. You know, he'll say, oh, come on, you know, one time won't hurt. He'll just give, he'll just do everything he can to convince us to cross the line and to fall into the ditch of some sin. And then as soon as we do, he turns around and he says, well, I guess that shows the kind of Christian you are. You know, you really blew it, you know. You call yourself a Christian? Even when you humbly confess your sin to God, Satan seeks to discourage you and make you feel that God is just sick to his stomach of you and your repeated failures. And that God doesn't want anything to do with you. Or he will seek to convince you that you're going through difficult times because God's punishing you for not being good enough. And yet here's the thing. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection... Satan is a defeated foe. Let me explain why. As I pointed out earlier in this message, we live in two realms. The spiritual realm and the natural realm. The spiritual realm is the eternal realm. It's the heavenly and the unseen realm. It is the realm of completeness, of wholeness and perfection. It is the realm of our spirit, which is the core of who we are in the eyes of God. Now, the natural realm, on the other hand, and please hear me on this, folks. This is so important. The natural realm, on the other hand, is the temporary realm. It's the earthly, the visible realm. It's that realm that we live in. It's the realm of our soul and our body. It's the realm of whom we are becoming. The realm of growth the realm of good and bad. 2 Corinthians 4.18 spells this out. I quoted it earlier, but here it is again. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now when Jesus died on the cross and then rose again from the grave, something happened in the spiritual realm that has the capacity to not only change each one of us, but also how God sees us. When you put your faith, sincerely put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that God takes the sin that is on your account and he transfers it and puts it on Christ's account. And he takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he puts it on your account. It's called the great exchange. The 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When he talks about him, he's referring to Jesus. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is a right standing of total acceptability before God. And folks, righteousness is a gift. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. Like any gift, all you can do is either to accept it or to reject it. But once you do, Once you embrace it by faith, it is yours. In that moment, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. You are one with Jesus Christ. 
In the spiritual realm, now remember the two realms here. In the spiritual realm, you are totally forgiven, righteous, and perfect in the eyes of God. Not because you live perfectly in this life or in the natural earthly realm, but because in the spiritual realm, you are in Jesus who is perfect. And he is righteous in the sight of God. Hebrews 10, 14 puts it this way. Because of one sacrifice, he has made perfect for how long? He has made perfect forever. But then notice what it says. Those who are being made holy. Hmm. This verse is actually in one verse speaking to both the spiritual and the earthly realm. Through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, those of us who put our trust in Jesus are in Christ and therefore God sees us as forgiven and righteous even as Christ is righteous. However, in the natural or the earthly realm, we're still being made holy. We are still growing in the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's why you'll see some passages of Scripture that really speak to the spirit realm. You'll see other passages that speak to the earthly realm. Satan was defeated in the spiritual realm. He's still alive and kicking around in the earthly realm. You probably noticed. But the important thing here is, if you have sincerely put your trust in Jesus, then you are in Christ. Your spirit and the spirit of Jesus are one. In the spiritual realm, you are his child, and your position in Christ will never change. Colossians 2.13 summarizes this so well. Look at what it says. When you were dead in your sins, Christ made you alive. He made you spiritually alive with Christ. God made you alive, spiritually alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He canceled it, folks. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross so that we could stop nailing ourselves to the cross. But then notice what it goes on to say. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. Go back to Ezekiel. What does it say about Satan? He was made a spectacle of he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Notice it says Jesus disarmed Satan and his cohorts. When you disarm someone who's holding a gun in your direction, and you take the gun away from him, you take away their capacity to hurt you. In the same way, when Jesus disarmed Satan through his shed blood on the cross, he made Satan's accusations untrue and therefore meaningless. He no longer has any basis, any legal right for his accusations because we are now in Christ in the spiritual realm. He may roar like a lion, accusing you and me of all kinds of things, but Jesus removed Satan's teeth, as it were, and all he can do now is roar and try to gum us to death. Because of the death and resurrection of our Lord, Satan has been disarmed. He can no longer harm us again. He can no longer make us feel insecure about our relationship with God. He can no longer make us believe that we're not loved or accepted by God. Unless, unless we rearm him by believing his accusations and his lies. I'll close with this. You know, on December 18th, 1865, slavery was abolished in the United States of America. Now, how many slaves do you think there were a day later on December 19th? Well, in reality, none. Legally, all slaves were free men and women. 
Unfortunately, many continued to live like slaves. Many still lived like slaves because they actually never learned the truth that they'd been set free. Others knew the truth and even believed they were free, but they chose to live as they always had as slaves. There were others, however, who remained as slaves because numerous plantation owners tried to keep the truth from the slaves so they could keep them as their slaves. You know, friends, Satan is like those plantation owners. He knows he's lost the war. It's only a matter of time when he will be totally defeated. He knows he has no legal right in the spiritual realm to accuse us anymore. We're one with Christ. But he continues to try to make us believe that we're still in bondage. He tries to deceive us with his lies. He tries to make us think that God is sick to his stomach of us and our failures. That we are unworthy to call ourselves Christians or to serve him. Well, don't believe him. You are a child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You are a child of God. You were created in his image. You have been justified and positionally declared righteous by him because of Christ's finished work on the cross and your faith in him. Romans 8 says, there is now, not sometime, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to be afraid of, only a dynamic Christian life to live to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and that we love. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Let's stand for closing prayer. want you to open your hands like this to the Lord again. What has the Spirit of God said to you this morning? What have you heard Him say to you specifically? If you're not sure, ask Him right now. What are you saying to me, Lord? And how will you respond to Him? Take a moment to do that right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the clarity it brings in so many areas, not only of our lives, but also in terms of these major characters we see in scripture like the enemy, Satan. Thank you for teaching us today about who he is and how he operates and how we can resist him. Lord, I thank you for the reminder that we don't serve you to gain your acceptance because we're already accepted by you in the spiritual realm. Oh God. And so out of love for you, we give our lives to you. We serve you. Thank you for reminding us, Lord, that we don't follow and obey you to earn your love. No, we already are loved by you. And so we want to follow you and live for you. 
thank you for reminding us, Lord, it's, it's not what we do that determines who we are, but it's who we are that determines what we do. May these truths, Lord, set us free today. Lord, I pray for anyone who has been kept in spiritual bondage by the deception, the lies of Satan. Lord, I pray that you would set them free. You said, if we know the truth, you'll set us free. It'll set us free. And I pray, Lord, that you would set people free all over this place right now. Lord, you'd set them free. You'd set them free, Lord, to live fully for you. You'd set them free, Lord, to give their lives fully to you without fear of being thrown in the doghouse when they fail. And Lord, I pray for those who, who don't know you today. Lord, that this would be the day that they would reach out to you in faith and make their peace with you. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.